Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is gonna put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Today, I welcome back Trevor Neal, a trader for over 50 years, having started out trading commodities with Merrill Lynch in the mid-1970s. We first spoke in April last year, and Trevor has since appeared on the show to discuss his innovative new trading product, the RRG UK Momentum Plus. Links to both of these interviews can be found in the episode description. During today's episode, we discuss the market mania surrounding GameStop, the relationship between a rapidly growing group of retail traders and their big money counterparts, as well as the madness of crowds, and where the similarities exist between this latest phenomenon and events like the South Sea bubble. Hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome back to the podcast, Trevor. Has it been a busy start to the week so far? Uh, yes, it has been. Uh, Monday's always a busy day, uh, starting the week. I have a lot to do uh, on Mondays, uh, and uh, trading-wise, often we get market moves on Mondays. So, yes, it's been moderately busy, but pleasant uh, lockdown. But looking out my window on the Kent countryside, which is beautifully white today. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that. It's absolutely freezing here. Yeah, it's also freezing. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you've probably got more picturesque uh, views than I have. I'm in sort of central London, so uh, not as lovely and white. None of it's really settling around here, unfortunately. All right. So uh, now I'm getting quite deep here, so, which is pretty. At this moment, it's pretty. Yeah, good. All right, then. Well, I want to get sort of stuck into the, the topic of the day, and, and that's GameStop. Yes. Yeah, so GameStop shares, I mean, they, they soared from a few dollars in 2020 to about $480 uh, on January 28th. Um, and they, then they actually went on to sink to 81 by February 2nd and have continued to slide since then. So that meant a firm that was worth $200 million in April last year was briefly valued at $30 billion. Uh, which, of course, then it's, it's since to shed uh, near, near all of that market value since. So most of the listeners will know those sequence of events. But in your opinion, what, what caused this to happen? Well, it, uh, we know the, uh, the culprits, which is uh, the uh, Reddit uh, uh, and particularly the uh, Wall Street Bets uh, uh, crew versus the uh, short-selling uh, hedge fund. So this was a phenomena. Um, an, un- an extraordinary ph- phenomenon, let's say, I wouldn't, uh, unusual is the wrong word, but it was a popular challenge between these two uh, parties. And um, uh, we'll go into the details of it, but, but I mean, as you said, the numbers are mind-boggling. And actually on that day, on the 28th, um, we opened at 265, the high was 483, so, so more, nearly doubled. Um, then And the low on the day was 112, so that's a range from, from 483 to 112, and then it ended that day at 193, and of course down now at uh, around about $60. But so uh, this is just amazing uh, amount of movements and volatility in a stock. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And was this the first time ordinary investors possessed the clout to, to move an asset, a stock in this case, in such a significant way? Um, I think it's the first time... 
that I'm aware of that they've had uh, success like this. And we have to say it was success. It was a, it was a challenge. I, I uh, you know, I'm not one. Of, I'm not a Reddit person, and I'm not a Wall Street Bets person. Um, I know very uh, little about Reddit except. That about two years ago, some friends of mine very excitedly told me that uh, something I'd said had uh, reached uh, number 10 in Reddit on some uh, forum. And, um, and, uh, and I said, well, what does that mean? And um, apparently it was very good. And uh, I went to look at it and what was it I'd said that, that got people excited. And it was, uh, I'd said something about something in the markets. And, and uh, what I immediately saw is this was essentially confirmation bias uh, from the group, because the group would, were very bullish of the thing that I was talking about, and they were looking for support for the bullish case, and they were saying, technical analysis expert confirms that, so-and-so, and, -so. and uh, that was why, why um, my, my mention went, uh, went so high. But, I mean, for me, it was just, you know, you're just looking for news which confirms uh, what you think in, in the market. Um, but uh, th this event that we've seen here was in my opinion, the first time that's ever happened, uh, that it is to such an extent that uh, the whole world knew about it. Yeah, absolutely. I guess um, if we are to sort of see this as something that has never happened before, an unprecedented event in, in certain ways, but maybe not others, and, and we'll get onto that. The, the failed short squeeze on silver uh, last week um, could be then a signal that GameStop was an anomaly or do you think, you know, we're witnessing the beginning of a new era? Do you expect us to return to business as usual? Or actually, is this a, a pivotal point in your opinion? Well, I don't know what, you know, again, as I say, I'm not one of them. So I don't know what was the, in the mind of, uh, of, the, of this group to take on silver. Silver, they had a success because silver was ready to break up. So they had, if you like, the tech on their side so uh, it was a good moment to trigger but it was like triggering a stop you know in a way there were many buy orders placed and it, and it broke through a level which triggered uh, a breakout it was a significant high and uh, so in this case they were doing what those naughty old uh, institutions uh, are accused of doing a lot of the time front running uh, a series of stops which they did but of course they like any occasion where you try and do that that's short-lived um, unless there's genuine fundamental follow-through or trend follow-through in it, which for the moment there wasn't. I'm, I actually think that silver will go up, um, that, uh, that, that it just triggered early um, a move that's uh, going to take place anyway. But it certainly fell back uh, once uh, the, uh, the breakout had, had uh, faded, um, uh, once the breakout had occurred. And so I imagine that was an expensive um, uh, experiment for, the, for those people. But basically, you know, can it really be that they didn't understand? You know, they had, it's very different from taking on the short sellers, uh, which is a small group of people, um, very large hedge funds, but, you know, individually it's a small group that were shorting uh, stocks uh, uh, like American Airlines and, and um, uh, GameStop and so forth. And, but uh, here you're taking on a big market, uh, has enormous supply and demand and stock level and trade. And, you know, to try and corner that market is a, is a you know, very big proposition to try and do that. It uh, happened once uh, in the past with Bunker Hunt, but that was uh, many decades ago. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, to, to focus on the other side of the market, then the institutional side of the market, 
Uh, I actually read that GameStop was not actually one of the most traded stocks by retail investors um, kind of during during the market mania uh, last month. So it featured on a list that I believe a JP Morgan analyst put together uh, and it came in at about, yeah, number 15 on that list. So kind of are we yet to learn the full story here? Was it actually retail traders that incited this sort of squeeze, this move alone, or did the institutional uh, participants have a part to play? I, d- I think um, here it's definitely my own uh, opinion, and I don't know the answer to that. But I think, as a general statement, it was a it was a retail driven thing. Uh, the retail market itself was was uh, um, it was uh, got itself into a lava of excitement, and and the bots, you know, were were getting people into a great state of uh, frenzy. Um, uh, we, and so, as a crowd, they had massive force. But uh, I think that um, most in, uh, other institutions don't really generally take on uh, the uh, the particular type of short sellers that we're talking about uh, here that um, do a lot of research and they pick their stocks carefully and um, there's a good reason for them to go short and basically they're just usually hurrying up an in- inevitable event. Um, and uh, and they published their research, which they did in this case about GameStop, why it should go down. And uh, and usually most people nod and say, well, that's true. And um, the stock goes um, uh, towards bankruptcy, um, but not in this case. Uh, you know, the, uh, these people didn't respect uh, this level of research, and um, we had this move. So, in my opinion, it was uh, it was started for short. In my opinion, it was started by the retail. This this uh, um, movement um, uh, to to take on these people and um, and to give them a lesson a bloody nose which they definitely did um, they didn't destroy them didn't, uh, but it was uh, definitely a singed the the beard of uh, King of Spain as they say um, but uh, I don't think it was institutionally driven it wasn't that and uh, although the institutions did jump in I myself jumped in uh, to participate in this game as soon as I saw it was on and um, uh, I. Uh, yeah. And I sold short uh, on it. You know, I, I thought, well, this is, is, you know, it can't defy gravity, is all I thought. But it, that was a gamble and a bet on my part. So I was no better than any Reddit investor in that sense. Yeah, of interest. When when did you get involved around about? I, I sold on the, um, on the 28th. And if you want to know my exact price, <laughs> I did it at 265. Okay. Yeah, interesting. So not the best price or anything like that. No, it's certainly not the worst price either. <laughs> By the uh, end of the day, it was uh, it was quite good, and then um, and then a couple of well this week and uh, the end of last week, it was uh, it was a lot better. But uh, I unfortunately think uh, that uh, maybe uh, this uh, this uh, game has um, probably hurried the inevitable um, uh, demise of the company. Uh, you know, it probably happened. Yeah, it was totally long, nicely around twenty-five dollars, and nobody really cared much, and it, and it just uh, carried on losing money, but but not quite going under. Uh, but here, here we have um, uh, uh, constructive, destructive uh, capitalism at play, and I think it just will be sped up now, and it'll probably go under earlier than it was going to. Yeah, yeah, completely see what you mean. Um, that actually probably brings me on to my next point then. Of course, this, this isn't the first time a stock's been pushed sort of far beyond its underlying value, regardless of who's actually doing it. Um, you know, We've seen a lot of stocks pushed well beyond their underlying value. 
but it does seem that 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 trend that that phenomenon is happening with increasing frequency does that concern you at all um it doesn't concern me uh, uh, it's it's the uh, what concerns me is that um analysis uh, uh, conventional fundamental analysis is not keeping up with um, what is really happening um you say uh, you know push beyond their value but what is their value i tell you the value of of it the value is 60.97 that's the balance between the buyers and the sellers that's uh, that's what it's worth um and enough people are willing to pay that and uh, a balance currently by um uh, the number of people who are willing to sell it now it's moved to 61.23 you know that's what it's worth and you can't say it uh, i can't say it's worth nothing or anything like that because enough people will pay that price to keep it there but what's the problem is that uh, the conventional ways of uh, determining the value of things are way way um uh, behind the times and um uh, they can't account for things like if we take uh, if we take tesla uh, for example um uh, tesla is in to some people innovative champion uh, company 10 years ahead of all other car companies wonderful dynamic inspirational uh, leader and it's uh, it's it's in charge of the whole electronic uh, e-car business to other people it's a it's a, a company run by an erratic as uh, the least uh, leader it's a company that has only just made a first profit um it's a company that couldn't make uh, profitable cars when they had the monopoly over $100,000 and now they're selling cars at $30,000 where they are about to have enormous competition uh, from Mercedes and and Volkswagen and so forth but yet uh, the share price is um uh, you know it is what it is what is it right now let me just uh, look at it um Tesla is at sorry it took me so long there is a 868.685 and um that's what it's worth but you know f- financial calculations um can't value a company like that you know it's it's a small producer of cars and yet it's worth all of the uh, more than all of the US car industry combined and yet it only produces relatively few cars it's got a price to earnings ratio of 1361 now i don't know many people don't sort of know what that means but what that means is the current price is um discounting the earnings the uh, current earnings for 1361 years ahead so this price with the current earnings is pricing in 1361 years ahead i mean many people would say that's a little bit crazy Uh, the, even the S&P was got a high PE at the moment, only 40, with, with an average PE of 15. And um, and so, why would people? On what basis is the price there? The, pre, the price is there because people, in their minds, believe it is worth it. And all this thing about the you know the guy and the man and the and um, you know it, it really almost a cult uh, uh, puts it ahead of Toyota and. and Ford and other companies uh, like that who have big factories employ thousands of people produce cars all over the world and uh, and produce many many cars and um and will be their competitors very soon so it's very difficult to to you know to use conventional calculations so if you're doing a CFA you know you're learning things but in the on the background people are saying but of course in real life it's not like this 
And I, li I liked uh, a friend of mine was showing me on, on a Zoom call. Um, he's got a new mug and he's a fundamental analyst and he, he got a mug and it was um, it said EBITDA-C. And what that stands for, EBITDA, you may know, stands for earnings before interest, taxes, depreciation, amortization, plus COVID. Because everything that was calculated pre-COVID changes with, with COVID. So you can't base any analysis of a company um, uh, because basically there was a sudden full stop there. And so you can't average the past and say that will be what happens in 2021 anymore. All the calculations simply don't work. But that's why as a technical analyst, um, uh, you know, I'm pleased about this because what we've got on our side is we understand that people make the price. Tesla is what it is because people like it and buy it intensively. Um, GameStop does what it does because, um, because people gang up and decide to do what they're doing. These are factors just like any other uh, factor in the market. And, um, and, uh, and we chart the value of price, the, the, uh, not the value of price, so we chart the action of the price, and that tells us the action of the buyers and the sellers and how supply and demand, hope, fear, greed, expectations are valued at 868.899 in Tesla right now. And that is exactly what all those things equal. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's a fascinating time for sort of fundamental analysis and whether it's actually going to be able to keep up with the times. I don't know whether you see, obviously, as you say, you're a technical analyst, but whether you see sort of peers kind of transforming the way they look at the market, they look at stocks in particular. Um, we, I, I've spoken to a few people on, on this podcast about sort of how they mine alternative data, social media feeds, uh, market sentiment, that sort of stuff, and whether actually that's going to be more relevant to stock market analysis than traditional fundamental analysis. I don't know whether you've got an opinion on that at all. Yes, I do. I mean, I, I think uh, uh, clearly it's very important to understand the mind of the social media mind. You know, to me, it's a foreign guy, an alien, this <laughs> person. Uh, and um, but uh, it's a force. Uh, there and we must know what the aliens are thinking and but we can read that and uh, I have in front of me right now a very sophisticated program uh, for reading and analyzing uh, social conversations with keywords and and uh, rating them and uh, rating groups and their their average for getting things right and getting them wrong and the ones that get it wrong a lot are actually uh, very useful and um, and uh, and using very sophisticated algorithms to analyze uh, the, the, the chat, the, the conversation, the, the hubble of conversation. But with powerful computers, we're able to do this now. Um, I, th I think, uh, you know, this is uh, uh, without doubt, it's an, because that is now a factor. And yeah. um, we can defy gravity if uh, the, uh, the um, Reddit crowd, I won't call them the aliens, <laughs> um, <laughs> decide that it's going up and there's enough of them to do it and they have a lot of power. We've, we've seen this has been growing. Um, you know, it's not a, in itself, I suppose it's not a surprise, but it was a surprise in, in, in that it had never happened before. And it caught all the risk models wrong-footed. You know, this is, you know, has never been put into any formula as a risk. You know, it didn't exist. It's a black swan, a true black swan, something you couldn't have imagined. Um, uh, happening in the market, but it's a reality. But that too makes it, you know, now not so much of a shock. And so once uh, uh, these things become expected, 
and factors, they may be more difficult for that to, that type of event to happen again. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'd point uh, just at this point. I'd point our listeners uh, to our Chris Camillo uh, interview. Um, he's a guy that actually created uh, a tool not too dissimilar to the one that you were describing there, called Ticker Tags, that I believe a lot of the institutions use. Um, and again, that helps them mine sort of social data using sort of NLP and things like that. Um, yeah. Yes, yeah, there are several, and the one I'm looking at is the Refinitive one, um, which is on, on their terminals. Right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Well, um, I mean, the, the whole reason this sort of trend and this uh, this alternative data question that we've just sort of posed there has come about is because I I guess that the access to global equity markets has has never been easier or cheaper. I mean, you, you can buy a stock on an app whilst you queue for a coffee, for example, um, for close to the wholesale price. You know, there's there's not really. Uh, any extra fee there at all now with apps uh, in the US like Robinhood, for example. Um, so do you think this has had a, a fundamental impact on the kind of underlying dynamic uh, financial stock markets? Yes, it, it has. It's, it's been, the, the if we call it the Robinhood revolution, I know it isn't just Robinhood, but, you know, the, the, um, the very, very accessible type of trading um, that has, has come. It was been moving towards that for years, but now, and Robinhood itself has been around for a bit, um, but now it's really a huge thing. Maybe COVID and people having a lot of time on their hands and finding, you know, playing gambling, you know, is is uh, just really boring. You know, we need to speed things up a bit <laughs> and, and, uh, and, uh, and finding this great uh, to participate in. And uh, I think it's it is here to stay. You know, what you've done is introduced new participants into the market, younger demographic, um, and uh, and you know they might have felt that it was very uh, inaccessible, difficult. You know, lots of difficult forms, and had you know uh, buying and selling very very difficult. Now it's just you know it's an app, and it's easy to open an account and. And uh, off you go, and uh, they'll let you do anything until you run out of money. Yeah, absolutely. And just to quantify, I read a I read an article earlier today that said as much as twenty five percent of total trading volume in global equity markets uh, in recent months um, was uh, yeah twenty five percent. You could attribute that to retail traders. I mean, that's that's nearly a quarter of the market um, attributed to retail trades, which is which is unprecedented. So, I mean, do you have do you have any thoughts on whether you expect that uh, that percentage to grow? Um, I hope it does. I, I think it's a good thing. Um, you know, you know, forgetting the this individual event, but the um, democratization of of of, uh, of uh, trading, I think, is good. Um, the uh, fact that people hopefully will be students and will learn to do serious <laughs> analysis and not just let's say gamble and challenge the establishment but actually think about their uh, future and the pensions and uh, in, uh, investments and will will now feel that they can do it for themselves and do, and do it well uh, for themselves so I, I'm I don't think it's a bad thing this what is a bad thing is that um, you know lots of people would have got hurt and they didn't understand what they were doing they were encouraged they were goaded 
and um, and you know that it. And I'm sure uh, amongst that uh, 80% drop in the price, there's been a great deal of pain because most of of the people who bought that speculatively didn't pay the low prices. They didn't pay 25 and 30 dollars. They bought it, uh, um, you know, at several hundred dollars, and they briefly were very rich, and then and then they were very, they lost a lot. And that will be much the majority. There won't be too many people who will claim to have walked away winners on that. There was only a very short moment when you could have sold to be one of those spectacular winners. The younger, newer investor has, in recent years, already had a a big impact, a really, really big impact um, uh, in another area, which is is the move towards um, ESG uh, conscious investing, and so much so that it, you know, many institutions are in quite a panic to restructure their product lines to get into line, and fearful of um, being uh, singled out as an evil bank or something like that. And so they're cleaning themselves up, and that is due to a ground-up swell of demand and saying, well, you know, I want my pension to be um, invested with a conscience and I don't uh, want to put, you know, to use blood diamonds and, 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 and invest in those sort of things. And, 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 you know, we've seen a revolution and this has been driven by a younger demographic, uh, the new pension holders, if you like, and pension buyers um, uh, and, and the institutions have had to very rapidly, and they have uh, very rapidly uh, adjust to this new phenomenon. So this is a different phenomenon, but from another another group of people, much more perhaps more, much more broadly based, uh, but still with a focus on you know taking on the establishment. The establishment wasn't with you know delivering them what they wanted. No, yeah, absolutely. I think I think we can definitely say that's that's the case. And I guess you know with uh, nothing to be gained on uh, savings accounts and the rate that you get there and things like that, people are just sort of aggressively going after um, kind of returns anywhere they can get it. And as you said earlier, with with the amount of time that people have got in their hands, particularly if they're furloughed, for example, but at least they're at home, so there's no commute time there as well. There's ample opportunity to, to start trading um, uh, and the access is, is there and unprecedented as we talked about. Um, but maybe a, a, a trend or a trend's the wrong word, a philosophy, I guess, that we can sort of attribute to this phenomenon, hopefully. Um, and it's one that we discussed in our Opto Sessions interview at the beginning of last year. It's, uh, well, it's crowd theory, broadly speaking, but the uh, the Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds is a book written, I think it was first published in 1841 by a guy called Charles McKay. Uh, we did discuss it in the original interview, but I imagine, uh, imagine people have forgotten and we will have uh, collected a few new listeners since then. So do you think that that book, the, the kind of theories that he talks about there and are kind of more relevant now than ever? I, th- I think they, um, they continue to be relevant. So since, since the book was published in 1850, there have been um, a series, uh, I count at least 10, but there are probably many more uh, bubbles. That, so he would have added more chapters to his book if he was writing uh, the book today. But um, I wonder whether this particular event is fits the mould properly. And I have thought hard about this. So was, was the GameStop bubble 
let's say, a classic bubble. I think it wasn't actually. Um, I think it was, may, may have been genuinely um, a, a change that's, uh, that's taking place. And I don't know if, if, we, if we've got time, but you know, the, the, the characteristics of a bubble, there are characteristics, they're repetitive from the, you know, the tube crisis and the South Sea bubble and the Mississippi uh, crisis. And, and as you go on through history, they all have things in common. And um, this one has a few missing uh, from it. Uh, so, you know, one of the things is this time it's different. It's often technology in some way uh, related to new uh, technology. And um, this was definitely the opposite of that. <laughs> it's really de de this particular one was to do with old technology and um, like a revival of vinyl records or something like that. So it, it doesn't tick that box. Um, there's always been in the in the classic uh, bubbles um, um, no moral uh, moral hazard. Sorry, moral hazard in the sense what, that if people invested, uh, they would be rescued if anything went wrong. The government was or uh, was there to to rescue them. This wasn't the case uh, here. Um, easy money. Well, it ticks that box. It's, a, it's in the era of easy money. Overblown growth stories, well, it doesn't support that one. Nobody really thought that uh, GameStop was going to become profitable um, as a result of this. Um, uh, also, another one is uh, you, in these bubbles, there's no valuation anchor. There's no, you can't say that the tulips um, can't be go up more than so-and-so because uh, daffodils are priced at so-and-so. There was no anchor uh, that, you know, in the bubbles. There's nothing you can say. Uh, this is like that. It's something different. So uh, here too, you ha you have got anchors. Um, uh, it usually happens in a period of conspicuous consumption. So people have got you know loads of money and they're and they're flashing their cash around and that sort of excess. And you know, don't think that's really uh, the case. The best way to to monitor that is through the price of art. Um, so probably art confirms that uh, we're in conspicuous consumption era. Um, uh, the uh, uh, Ponzi uh, financing of it, well, we could probably tick that box. Um, uh, the decline in credit standards, we can tick that box. Um, irrational exuberance, we can tick that box. And, um, and then uh, gurus and leaders, influencers, and we can tick that box because there were individual people who were the, uh, you know, we can identify as the leaders. And I, I don't know if you know who one of the leaders was of the South Sea bubble. It was uh, Sir Isaac Newton, who lost a fortune. You know, in the end, he was uh, living off the uh, the generosity of his friends. And he lost a lot. And uh, that's quite often the case. It's very intelligent people that are actually part of the bubble itself, the driver of the bubble. So I, I just, I'm, I'm, th I'm thinking about it. And I think uh, that it it's maybe doesn't go into the book of uh, Popular Delusions uh, book, this one, uh, because it doesn't really exactly look like a bubble, actually. It's something else. Yeah, it's something else. But that that's something else, whatever we can call it. Do you expect that to happen again? Um, I personally don't. I think that they've shot their bolt. Um, uh, but again, this is my opinion, and I can definitely be wrong uh, about this. Um, but um, uh, I think they've shot their bolt here. Everybody's watching now. Uh, my computer is watching. <laughs> you know, I didn't really look at it, and now I am looking at it, uh, studying the chat on Reddit and, and uh, other 
uh, influencing uh, places like that. And, uh, and people will hope, I think, that they will try and do it again and, uh, and, and they'll try and um, uh, go against it uh, the next time. Um, but uh, particularly if they pick something, some no-hoper uh, stock like that, you know, um, it's uh, it's you, nobody was happier about this than you know American Airlines and uh, AMC. You know, both of them used the unexpected bonanza of the blip up in their stock to issue new shares. You know, they must have been happy to be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I never expected that. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah absolutely. Um, yeah, no, that's fascinating. It's a really, really interesting sort of way uh, sort of comparing it to historical events. It's, it's not something I've heard reported elsewhere in the in the financial media. People just focusing on this being an unprecedented event. But actually, you know, maybe it is something different. But to compare it to stuff that has happened in the past is is a really interesting way to look at it. So, so thanks for sharing that. Yeah, it's a pleasure. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. And to move us on to kind of the murky waters, I suppose, of market manipulation, it's something we've discussed uh, between ourselves uh, previously. Um, and it, uh, the, I mean, there's, there's ongoing sort of speculation around manipulation with uh, the GameStop um, trade and just sort of the Wall Street bets community as well but actually that applies to to the hedge funds uh, i've seen sort of questions asked of them as well uh, but when we discussed it again in this this early interview early last year which people will be able to find on the feed so certainly go back and have a look um you were fairly emphatic at the chart at the time the potential for manipulation is well limited extremely limited um do you maintain that view now well i think it was manipulated but by the reddit people <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> uh, clearly it was. You know that they, they they had a goal, and it was to manipulate the stop higher way above any measure of its uh, of its worth, and um, and really to, for the purpose, I think, a mischievous purpose of teaching these evil hedge funds that uh, that uh, short stocks uh, a lesson. The evil hedge funds themselves uh, played the game fairly. You know they they did their research, which was serious research. You know they didn't make it up about that company um, and published the research. And basically, you know, the uh, the manipulation, if you like, is people read the research um, institutions and they say, they nod their head and say, that's right. And uh, that's why the, it goes goes down. But basically they're only, um, um, you know, they're not lying. Otherwise people wouldn't, wouldn't, uh, wouldn't then sell it. Uh, they wouldn't follow it because they do check it. Um, and um, and so in that respect, they're transparent, and it's it's actually being transparent is what they're doing. They're saying they're revealing things that people don't appreciate and making it clear and bringing it to people's attention. But on the other side, um, I think we had a a, a um, you know clear attempt to to manipulate the stock higher. Um, so <laughs> interestingly, it's um, it's not the institutions that are the bad guys. If you, if if it is a bad guy um, to to manipulate uh, the stock, it was it was the average Joe public. Yeah, that was the bad guy. Yeah, it's interesting because I was doing a bit of reading online, and it seems like the grouping together of individuals to uh, discuss an idea. Um, I mean, hedge funds do this on a regular basis. They talk through kind of ideas and share ideas, share trade ideas. Um, and that's obviously going online all day, every day uh, on Twitter, Reddit, etc. Yeah. It's actually when once you sort of add that intention of 
um, as you say, sort of sticking it to the hedge funds and that kind of, it's that sort of more illicit intention of manipulating the stock higher for that less than positive purpose. That's kind of where the murky waters start, I think. Um, but obviously there's ongoing investigations into this, so we'll, we'll see how that pans out. Well, if the, in- if the institutions did it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> colluded uh, to manipulate it higher, they, they would all be heading for jail. Well, absolutely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, okay, well, it's an interesting one. We'll see how that story pans out. Well, we kind of touched on it there, I think, the sort of this interplay and this relationship between the retail audience and the institutional audience. Uh, and actually, we ran an extremely popular video on on our YouTube channel. Uh, it was after an event last year where you, where you discussed this relationship and we explicitly focused on it. You discussed a private trader's advantages and disadvantages uh, versus their institutional peers. Um, and of course, this relationship has been thrown into sharp relief with the recent short squeeze on GameStop. So we've seen some big hedge funds incur heavy losses, like we discussed uh, earlier on. Uh, they had to exit their short positions uh, in GameStop uh, because of this retail incited squeeze, I suppose, is the way we've kind of described it during the call. Um, so can retail traders take on big money and can they win now? Well, they nearly did with this. I, uh, I don't know whether I'm right to say that they didn't win, and, uh, but to me, it, uh, it, uh, I don't think there were many. Will be many people who walk, walked away big winners. So many people say I made, you know, my account had, you know, thirty million in it at, at one moment, but I don't think there were thirty million in it by the time they cashed it in. Um, I think that will be a very small group of people that uh, won on that. Most people will have lost. Um, but it, it's um, it, it's definitely you know uh, when I gave when I gave that talk, I, I basically one of my themes was that uh, that the institutions basically ignore uh, the retail investors. They're just too small. They don't mean anything, and what they do doesn't matter. What they do, well, that wasn't right, was it? Um, you know, here here they ganged up together, and they were a force, and 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 to us. Couple of a few hedge funds, only a few. Don't forget, it's not the whole hedge fund industry. Most of the people don't do that. Um, but uh, uh, the uh, they did stick it to those uh, those particular hedge funds, and so they were a force. And uh, they will be, and they are growing. And as you you say about the volume, they are becoming a force. Um, it's um, it's it's. There's been many clues uh, towards that. Uh, actually. Um, you, you know the commitment of traders see at the cot reports you know you could years ago you could uh, reliably say when you had big, big build ups of longs in the in the small investor the retail uh, investor uh, in a bull market um, and and a build up of um, or a, a um, liquidation going on from the large commercials that that would be a top in the market because the retail market guy was always the last person to buy Actually, this isn't true. This isn't true at all. Actually, the retail guy as a group, as revealed in that data, has got a lot, lot better. And I think the commercials um, not, haven't got a monopoly at selling at the top and the bottom in the way they, they used to have. So, you know, there's been a, uh, an improvement, if you like, in the, um, in the behaviour of, uh, of the retail investors, which we've seen over years um, in, in other you know, futures markets where we have the cot data. So um, uh, I, w- I would re- retract that uh, where they to say they don't take any notice. I think they will take notice from now on. But you know they they're clever people, the institutions, and they've got powerful computers, um, and uh, they'll be watching and uh, and they'll spot it. 
um, uh, you know, very quickly uh, in the future. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, as a, as a aside, I suppose, do you, do you think we'll see fewer short focus funds? I guess more particularly moving forward. It just seemed that uh, this sort of retail uh, incited short squeeze, exposing some long held positions uh, in hedge fund space, like you discussed. There, it seemed like. Um, that sort of lessened the investment case for these sorts of funds going after those sorts of positions a touch, uh, given how sort of unruly and uh, unpredictable the retail trader base can and, and probably will continue to be moving forward. I wonder whether you had uh, any any thought on that. I don't. I, I don't think it will stop it. I think it. Um, you know, in, in a odd sort of way, they um, they uh, have a function. You know. Um, of, of you know revealing the worth of companies and perhaps hastening this transition this uh, you know this capitalist effect you know which uh, destruction but i mean that is how it is you know um that's capitalism really you know thing you know the high street you know um ends and um, and maybe ends sooner as a result of covid but does something that was going to do anyway it's a destructive uh, effect and um so uh, it's called, you know, Schump, uh, Joseph Schumper's uh, cr- uh, creative destruction e- economics. It is the nature of economics, and this is just one of the ways it's it's done. You have to reveal these kind of zombie companies, um, and there'll be plenty more of them after COVID. You know, that are just hanging on because they're getting government grants and things like that. But actually, will never have a business afterwards. You know, they're actually finished now, but but the government is holding them up. And the staff are furloughed and things like that, but uh, there's going to be lots of zombie companies after this event. So I think uh, no, I don't think it'll go away at all. And actually, I don't think it's a bad thing. No, no, uh, yeah, I, I'd agree. I just wondered whether, because they hadn't had to uh, deal with such a large sort of uh, unpredictable segment of the market before, it made them think twice about going after these positions. But actually, in the current environment, there's going to be more of these trades to be had i would imagine as kind of you were alluding to there i think i think their models will alter you know because they now have a new factor risk factor and it won't be a one in twenty thousand year event anymore um, it will be something which can happen and uh, and they'll factor it in and they'll look for the signs of it you know it's a, it's a hazard they don't always win you know that you know that they, even before this they get they don't always win you know because they leverage up on the short side and uh, and it's quite expensive to run shorts, and so the time is against them. And if the rest of the world doesn't agree with them quickly enough, they have to cover. You know, so it's nothing to do with the private guys. They don't always win. Okay, well, and going back to the interview that we just sort of highlighted there, um, you gave it at the at the Opto event that I referenced, and you within that you identified an individual participant's sort of ability to. Uh, if I quote you right here, to trade wholesale, not retail. Um, and it was an interesting idea and one that captures this dynamic where at any given point, retail and institutional traders are often trading in opposite directions. Uh, I wonder whether you could sort of explain that idea to the listeners. It, it seems quite pertinent now. The institutional trader um, works at some considerable disadvantages uh, in some respects, although they've got low transaction costs and they're very close to the market and they've got lots of money, uh, but actually they have to work with lots of money. Therefore, it's hard to make, you know, 
money. They can't do many of the trades the private investor uh, can do because they're, they're very flexible in, out, things like that, unless they're using a, 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 a high-frequency trading program. But if you think of something like this, um, and this is what the uh, specifically what I was talking about with the wholesale and re retail. If you think of, of a market which is coming to a support level, so it's a level that where it's a previous low or something like that, that means the same to a retail guy as it does to to a uh, institutional guy. So how does it behave at that point? Now, if, um, you you might see how the bars are evolving. Um, you might be looking at five minute bars, you know, hourly bars, daily bars, something like that. Candles, and you might see that at this horizontal support level, uh, the market is is the bodies of the candles are getting small, so there's sort of uh, no conviction during the day. The shadows are all below the line, and and um, and you may say this looks like it's it's going to hold the level, and then maybe there's a, a white candle, nice white candle, the support has held, and you might say um, if if the market moves ahead of the high of that candle, I will buy. And that would be um, a, a conservative, good way uh, to say a support levels hold. Of course, it hasn't held until it's moved away from the support itself. So you have to wait for that uh, strong white candle to get the confirmation. And maybe you're conservative enough that you want some follow through after that, uh, that one white candle at the support level. Now, on the other side, how would the um, institutional uh, trader behave looking at the same event itself. Now, he cannot afford uh, to wait and, and uh, to buy um, his position when the white candle forms and make and we break the high of the white candle, then start to buy. He's going to buy so much uh, that it's going to push uh, the market up. He can only, um, if he wants to get on a large position, a meaningful position, a, a position which is, is if, the, if he's right, makes him a serious amount of money, then he, um, he will start to buy early. That's dangerous, of course, but on the early uh, uh, signs of it. And he will try and buy while the market is offered, not while it's bid, as it would be when you've had that white uh, candle there. The market's all gone bid and everybody's a buyer and all the sellers are withdrawing. You want to buy into the into the end of the fall. So they'll be using, you know, momentum indicators like the stochastic, for example, or more sophisticated things. But we're trying to catch the last part of the the uh, the sell-off into the resistance to use the offers of that last part um, uh, to accumulate a large position. D they will also um, uh, buy the bulk of their position early and reduce the amount as they as the price goes in their favor and that's typically exactly the opposite from what uh, retail investors do retail investors when at the beginning they're not sure so they buy small let's say they buy one lot um, then it starts to go in their favor like they thought it would do so they buy another couple of lots so now they've got three and then it's really moving in their favor so they double up and now they've got six what they've got is an average, which is very close to the current price. The institutions will do that in reverse. Let's take the same size. They will buy three, then higher up two, then buy, then buy one. So the average is close to the initial price. Um, and therefore, they've got more room and they can have their stop uh, further back. And, and so... And then by the time that white candle has appeared and you're breaking the high of that white candle and as a retail investor, your um, 
um, uh, you're, you're now entering the market saying that the support levers hold, that's probably the time that the institutional investor is selling because he's taking his profit on the move. And so, you know, this is the, if you like, the wholesale attitude as opposed to the, uh, the, um, uh, the retail attitude of, of trading. So try and become closer, uh, you know, as a retail investor, become closer to the wholesale and think like the wholesale, not the retail. Don't pay retail. Yeah, no, exactly. I thought it was such an interesting time to uh, re-examine that, that dynamic uh, and that kind of mindset of thinking wholesale rather than retail. So if I move us on then to, to one of my final questions before we move on to the quickfire question round, uh, which is where we'll finish the interview. Um, this relationship between uh, retail and institutional, if you want to frame it with those two words, um, I'm just interested to see or kind of get your thoughts on how that develops. I mean, to me anyway, it, it seems relatively antagonistic. I think probably more so from the retail side. As you say, I don't imagine the institutions care too much from what the, uh, the retail traders think of them. But certainly from the retail traders side, it's felt fairly antagonistic. They, they frame them as the enemy, at least the Wall Street Bets uh, subreddit positioned these big hedge funds as, as the enemy when they went after their short positions. So I just wanted to get your view on, on kind of how you see that relationship developing, whether we're going to see more uh, antagonism going forwards. What's your thought? Um, I, I think uh, um, it seems like the mood is on for that, but it will come from the, uh, the retail side. Um, maybe, you know, smarting from losses and uh, you know and you know determination will increase to do it better next time um and there are many smart people in there you know um maybe silver wasn't a smart one and that was fairly obviously not going to work um but uh, uh the i think uh, that was clever really to to pick on you know a group of people that felt they weren't vulnerable um the short sellers um only to other institutions not following their lead that was their only risk uh, really, and um, and then this new phenomenon, which was this uh, angry crowd, um, uh, came in and and took them on, and uh, so I I, th- I think for a while anyway this will this will continue. It may end in the in the, the loss sickness may set in for these people, and um, and they may say you know better get a better job a proper job, <laughs> and and uh, but we'll, we'll have to see. You know maybe they'll hit a splendid success. Um, but I, I, I'm, you know, I, I think they've, you know, I'm not against all this because I think it's actually we've learned a lot of lessons uh, about uh, from this. Um, uh, I, you know, I think that uh, they've done a lot of things which I, I think would be quite helpful and will, and will have an impact. I don't know if it, maybe I'm answering uh, the next question, but uh, you know, they, the clear benefit is the increase in liquidity, uh, more participants. You know, more new participants learning about the markets, um, people doing it for themselves. I think that's a good thing uh, that people can feel they can do that um, and learn that uh, a bull market is not being clever. It's just a bull market, you know, and and, uh, and uh, markets go down as well as, as up. But all the, these lessons hopefully are, um, and are learned without fatality. But I think there are a couple of other important things that are going to happen as a result of this because it really, really showed up a big shortcoming in the um, in the settlement system in, in equities. Um, uh, the two-day settlement, you know, in the US for, for equities, 
caused this problem of, of, um, of uh, the brokers uh, not being able to to service uh, Robin Hood and Robin Hood having to close out and to cut off its clients and not take orders and, and things like that. And uh, and so this this was a real problem um, for the uh, market makers and those that service uh, Robin Hood itself um, were uh, really exposed. Um, and, um, you know, Robin Hood is not a big company. Um, it's not a well-financed company. It had to recapitalize uh, itself during the whole, whole process itself. Um, and, you know, a lot of these companies, um, the reason they are more expensive than Robin Hood is because, you know, they have to maintain the capital and, and, um, and be the large companies that takes the strain of this kind of thing. But uh, I think the, the two-day settlement was always crying out uh, to be um, uh, shortened. And I remember um, two, uh, two years ago, I went to a, a talk and uh, uh, I better not name names, but because the people are quite well known and they might sue me. Uh, but um, the, um, in, on the um, podium was a person from uh, a very big stock exchange and, uh, and uh, also um, somebody, I will say, from NASDAQ. And um, and they were talking about the uh, the settlement and the blockchain. And so the actual subject of the talk was the blockchain. And uh, people were saying, why don't you um, uh, settle? Uh, you, you know, because technologically, there's no reason that it takes two days to settle. You can settle almost instantly. You could se settle 50,000 times a second if you wanted to uh, do that. And NASDAQ guy was saying that uh, they were, were uh, doing that and they had established a a subset of the exchange to actually test this and and, and this was definitely the future as far as they were concerned uh, near instant uh, settlement but the person from the other exchange uh, said that they thought the, blo the blockchain was the solution um, without a problem you know it's working fine two-day settlement so why spend billions or millions uh, to change it and I think the answer to that is uh, this is the reason why, because um, because the system nearly broke uh, here and it will happen again. And so um, really they need to set two days is archaic as a settlement process, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, for me, that, that seems extraordinary that someone in that position would would kind of be that short sighted. Yeah, well, that's it. Eh? That's what, those were the very words. A solution without a problem. <laughs> <laughs> Wow. Uh, well, there you go. On that, uh, uh, I think that's a quite a nice place to end, actually. Um, <laughs> I'll move us on then to our, our quickfire question round. So uh, I don't think we did this, or we, we might have done a version of this last time you came on the show, uh, but cer certainly the questions will have changed. Um, and this is just simply a lighthearted way to end the episode. Uh, uh, feel free to answer in as little as one sentence or even one word. <laughs> okay. My first question to you is what is the top mistake investors make? Okay, and um, here uh, to answer the question specifically about the retail investor is they focus on the reward and don't uh, uh, consider the risk. And uh, that's why so often it goes awry. Um, question two then, where do you go for investment or economic insights? Do you read any specific publishers, for example? No, I I, um, I try and avoid uh, that. Uh, oddly enough, I'm a technical analyst, and everything I need to know is in the price. And um, fundamentals are therefore a distraction. And I I find it uh, like very easily to be to uh, think that my opinions are my own, but it's really something that I read somewhere. And I think 
you know, I thought of that, but I didn't at all. And uh, uh, so I'm, I'm quite careful about that. However, I can't live in a bubble. I don't live in a bubble, but I only read the FT on a Saturday. And so basically I find out what happened and why, what was the fundamental reason. But I mean, basically I know what happened because it was the price. And if the price went up, there was something bullish that happened. So it's not really um, important to know what it was, uh, that, that news. And, um, you know, I don't think that uh, we're well, particularly well served by a lot of um, the big publications anyway. So um, I don't, you know, I don't read uh, publications to get any inspiration or insight about the markets. I, I think everything I need is in the price. Yeah, no, well, that makes a lot of sense. Um, so question three then, what is the most memorable moment from your career to date? Um, I, th- I, I, th- I think th- that it, it was when I was trading for the hedge fund in South Africa, we traded very, very intensely there. We were big traders in the market. We did about 3% of the turnover of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange, which is quite a big stock exchange with the big stocks, Richmond, Anglo-American, Anglo-Platz, all the uh, BHP, you know, primary listings there. And we were very big in that. And we day traded uh, those things and we, t- we sold them short, borrowed and sold uh, short. And um, I was working really, really hard doing that. We may, we were doing really well, making a lot of money, best performing uh, active hedge fund in the country and all that sort of thing. Uh, but I'd never worked so hard in my, you know, since I was in my 20s. And it was exhausting. And, you know, I was dizzy at the end of the session. But on the 7th of July, uh, 2005, you remember the, uh, the terrorist attack uh, there. Uh, one, the, that bus, one of the things was the bus blew up in, in Russell Square. My son lived in Russell Square. And I was quickly on the phone uh, to, to try and get hold of him. I couldn't get hold of him. I wasn't answering the phone. And my partner said to me, he said, get off the phone. He said, if your son is dead, you'll know at the close. And our clients expect us to make this should be the, one of the biggest days of the year financially for us. That's when I realised I had to get out of that hedge fund and return to the UK and operate my own. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, that, that is quite extraordinary to hear. Wow. Um, yeah, that's going to live long in the memory for sure. Okay, then, well, hopefully to a slightly more positive note, a top tip for your younger self. Yeah, I, you, you know, um, what one would like to say, uh, you know, I should have bought Apple and, you know, and, and held on to it. But that would have never happened. You know, there's no point in saying that, uh, really. Uh, I remember Apple starting, you know, and uh, I remember I had an Apple computer. Apple II uh, computers before the Mac uh, uh, came out. A- Apple was always a dodgy company. It was very questionable whether Apple uh, would uh, be able to survive. You know, who, what's, why did people want to continuously pay 50% more for computers uh, for a locked-in system um, when they've got an open system like the IBM system that you can buy any old computer and any old bits for it? And um, and so, you know, it was very questionable. It was only when the iPhone came out that really you could say that company is not going to go bankrupt um, and it's, it's worth it. So I can't really say I should have done that because I wouldn't have done that. Um, I didn't. I thought it was actually probably going to go bankrupt. But um, I would say that uh, to answer your question more succinctly and, cor- and, and, uh, and uh, correctly, the tip for my younger self is I would properly understand the awesome power of compound interest, which I've, through my life, can continuously fail to appreciate and um, 
you know what that means if you have a long career and a, and a, a long time participating in the markets, even as a house buyer or uh, just uh, in, the, in that sense of the word. Don't underestimate. And really, people do, even experts do, uh, the awesome power of compound interest. Absolutely. That, that's one that we've uh, potentially had in this section, but certainly discussed with a guy called Morgan Housel that does a lot on sort of uh, behavioural psychology and things like that. But it's just yeah. not an intuitive concept. No. Uh, so I think a lot of people struggle with it. Yeah. Even experts. Yes. Yes, exactly. Okay, final question then. Uh, this is sort of the, the opto question. We strive to speak to people that uh, sort of outperform the markets or are looking for sort of alpha above and beyond sort of benchmark returns. So in your opinion, what is an investor's best source of alpha? Um, I, I, I think, um, first of all, investors should take trading seriously. And I think that uh, most of the participants uh, in retail participants are in it for entertainment. And that's not a bad reason, you know, to be, be in it, but they don't, they they think it's serious because of the business itself. But, but trading and investing is a serious business and it should be treated like a business. And you should, you should think about uh, the plans and the risk. Um, use the advantages you have as a smaller investor, uh, which is your smaller size, so you aren't having to cope with the, you know, the problem of executing orders. Trade in a time frame where you have an advantage, you have no disadvantage like end of day. You know, end of day data is the same end of day data for an institution as it is for, for a private investor. And you can probably do the analysis better. I work with institutional traders. Um, they are, um, you know, not as clever as sometimes you might think. Um, you've got the advantage you can diversify. A lot of them can't because they are a this, you know, I'm a copper trader and that's all they're allowed to do is copper. And that's a big disadvantage to them because copper could, could be nothing or uh, to do in it or, um, um, uh, or um, you know, it's a lot easier if you traded, you know, Vodafone, uh, for example. Um, please respect uh, how much capital you need in order to survive in this. You've got to realise that you're not going to win every time and, um, and uh, you know, losses are normal. And if you can't take those losses and it's game over, then, you know, you, you're definitely going to uh, be um, out of the game. Um, I suggest also be systematic, rule-based, um, uh, and let the develop a computer program uh, to help you uh, do the things which make sense in a rigorous, disciplined way. And then finally, uh, do all the thinking about a trade in advance of the trade itself. Leave nothing uh, that you're going to do um, to be done during the trade. Only before the trade can you think clearly, um, uh, because you haven't got a PL, you haven't got your heart racing uh, at all. You haven't put any money into the market. You can plan your, um, uh, if the market moves to here, I'm going to stop out. If the market moves to here, I'm in my favor, I'm going to raise the stop. If my stop moves above my ent entry price, um, you know, I'm trying to, I will do something else. And um, all that, try and think as far ahead as you can and then make the trade. Therefore, everything during the trade is just a process. Next, I have to do this. Next, I have to do that. All the thinking was done when you could think clearly. You can't think clearly when you've got a position. So think, why do footballers ever miss penalties? You know, it's because of the pressure of the moment. Something is easy, good, they're highly paid, they've done it a thousand times, but they can mess it up. Why? It's the pressure of the occasion. And so 
do everything you you have to do before the pressure of the occasion. Absolutely. Some really valuable advice, actually. Um, I think that's a perfect place to to end the interview. So thanks very much, Trevor, for joining us on the uh, Optus Sessions podcast again. It was, a, it was a real pleasure for me. Thank you very much. Thank you very much indeed, Hayden. Great pleasure, as always. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to CoFruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.
I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions. Today, I welcome back Trevor Neal. During today's episode, we discuss the market mania surrounding GameStop. A trader for over 50 years, having started out trading commodities with Merrill Lynch in the mid-1970s. We first spoke in April last year, and Trevor has since appeared on the show to discuss its innovative new trading product, the RRG UK Momentum Plus. Links to both of these interviews can be found in the episode description. Hope you enjoy the episode. (laughs) 